Welcome to my podcast, Why Do Pets Matter? This is Deborah Hamilton. This podcast will seek to define and explain this important question from multiple points of view. We will interview owners, breeders, caregivers, defenders, advocates, champions, and educators. The mission of my podcast is to seek and foster collaborative conversations where every point of view feels heard, acknowledged, and appreciated. I look forward to you joining me on this journey toward a better understanding of each other. It is possible to have an impossible conversation. It starts with listening for common ground first. I am so glad you're here listening in with me. Now let's see what my next guest has to say. Hi, it's Deborah Hamilton, and you are listening to Why Do Pets Matter, the podcast that interviews an assortment and array of wonderful people in the animal field so we can all exchange ideas and information. Today, I have a repeat guest who I absolutely love, uh, Tom Nickel of the Thomas Nickel Law Firm uh, out of Florida. And we had talked the last time about pets and dogs and cats, but really Tom and I wanted to extend that conversation to include horses because Tom was a track veterinarian. Um, and now we're going to talk about his experiences as a, vet uh, a track veterinarian because he's a veterinarian and an attorney. He's like, over over the top with wonderful education and wonderful information. Um, but we want to talk about his experiences at the track, but also now possibly looking at experiences at the track that he's viewing in current times. So we're going to go back and then we're going to go forward. So Tom, thank you so much for coming back on Why Do Pets Matter? Well, thank you very much for having me and thank you for your kind words. Um, I understand that you want to talk about the racing situation in the past and as it uh, is occurring at present. Right, because we have uh, had so many issues that have been you know, raised on tracks and conditioning of horses. And now because of COVID, um, conditioning of horses has, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, had a little bit of break because the tracks were closed. So let's start with wherever you want to begin um, with your experience and then move forward. Well, in the past, the, the, the racetracks were uh, very busy in terms of the horses and the personnel on the backside of the racetrack and also those huge uh, crowds of spectators. Well, uh, it has been suspended in terms of... Uh, racing as a, as a spectator sport for this past couple of months and is not expected to start again for another month or so. Uh, of course, uh, some of the horses have been able to continue training uh, at various training centers, but they can only get up to being so fit there without racing. And there's probably been about uh, three or four months at least without any racing. Uh, so I think that uh, we can anticipate probably uh, a lot of uh, less fit horses uh, coming to the races and uh, quite possibly some more injuries to them as a result uh, of being raced uh, while in that condition. So when you were a veterinarian on the track, I presume before you went to law school, um, was this still um, or was this a problem that we have now that um, tracks are a little bit different and horses are breaking down and, and many people are really worried about 
um, the breakdown of horses on tracks? Well, there's always been a uh, certain number of unfortunate incidents which occurred, which resulted in the uh, horses breaking down because, uh, let's be honest, they're running at uh, top speed with somebody on their back, beating them with a whip in competition with other horses that are doing the same thing. So they're stressed to the max, and no matter how the uh, facts try and make the uh, surfaces safe and uh, performance of the race is safe, it's inevitable that uh, some of them will get hurt. Uh, in the past, the, the main pressure has been from the owners that want their horses to run, uh, sometimes when they shouldn't be. But in current situation, there is the added uh, fact that uh, not only is that pressure in existence, but the horses themselves haven't been able to compete for this past three or four months. So the pressure is even greater to get them to uh, run uh, when they're not ready, perhaps, or repetitively more often than they normally would have because they haven't been able to run for this past three or four months. Because experience is key for horses to go in the gate, to come out of the gate, to settle into a, a pace and then to make turns. I mean, so much of the race is uh, conditioning and experience. Well, that's absolutely true. And some of the training centers that the horses are on do have those facilities, but many and probably the majority do not. And uh, therefore, like you say, uh, they don't have the necessary, especially the younger horses that haven't been ex exposed to this before, they don't have the necessary exposure to uh, make them as, uh, although it's never safe, but as safe as can be uh, when they're in competition. Yeah, it's, it's difficult to even um, imagine. I think that there is... Um, a discussion that's been had about different surfaces. And when you were at the track, um, what was it that you heard about surfaces? And now that you're an attorney um, and looking from a different viewpoint, the surfaces have changed and are they getting better or um, are they doing their best, which I think they're trying to do their best, but is it working? Well, that's an interesting question because the traditional track is basically a sand a dirt track. Uh, and then they uh, tried uh, an artificial surface at one of the uh, racetracks here in Florida. Uh, that resulted in a lot of sore horses. Uh, they also had uh, uh, different artificial tracks, which were all the rage on training centers uh, because of they drain better and they give a better cushion to the horses. They they even put some of these in some traditional race tracks, um, and they have since, uh, after having them for two or three years, decided that really it's not so good. And there have been some major race tracks. I believe Keeneland is one of them that's put it in and taken it out again. Yeah. So um, it is a factor, but uh, it doesn't. There doesn't seem to be any great improvement. Um, there has been some uh, research from the uh, University of Massachusetts, uh, which uh, indicated that it wasn't so much the surface, but the lack of gradation on the turns that caused a lot of the twisting injuries. And they recommended a, a bank 
of, uh, I think, about 25 degrees. Well, the problem with that is no matter what raising surface you've got on with that kind of an angle is going to wash off into the middle of the track. So uh, there have been a number of ideas of how to improve things, but so far nobody has come up with a practical way of how to improve things. That consistently um, serves the horse. I know that there's a, a huge outcry, you know, to stop racing like they did with greyhounds. Um, <clears throat> but that really, there's two schools of thought for that. Um, how do you feel about that? Uh, before I get into that, let me let me preface this by uh, something else. We were talking about racing surfaces. Right. The number of injuries on the turf where horses are more in their more natural environment is amazingly less than on dirt tracks. Uh, so that's that's one thing to be considered. But the problem with that in the situation in this country where there is racing every day is the turf tracks cannot handle the load that would be placed upon them uh, on, a, on a daily basis two or three times a day. Um, unlike uh, in, for example, the UK, which is all turf, but the meetings are only like one day every three weeks. Uh, so the uh, stress that's placed upon the turf is, is much less. And the vast majority of the tracks there are on turf. I think there are two or three on dirt, but, but out of hundreds is turf. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you brought that up because it is a big difference between turf and um, I'm going to say dirt, which isn't really hundred percent correct. Uh, but the, the surfaces on the turf really provide, um, a more natural cushioning, uh, and, and unfortunately, or fortunately may provide slower times than, um, the turf is, is that maybe a motivating factor? Or am I completely wrong? And you can absolutely correct me. Well, I wouldn't say that it would provide slower times. It, it, it depends very much on, on what they call the going or, you know, how hard or fast it is, how much rain there's been, you know, and stuff like that. But if you get, if you get a, a fairly good going, the times are, are not, uh, are not really uh, bad. Yeah. Yes. So that might be something that should be considered as a, as a middle ground, um, less racing, which would be nice so that the younger horses have a little bit of a break, um, and more racing on turf. Well, uh, both of those would be a good idea, but uh, unfortunately, we run up against uh, financial interests of racetrack owners and uh, uh, racehorse owners uh, who don't want to have their horse only run uh, once a month somewhere. It's interesting enough in the UK, um, the average horse runs considerably less. Like uh, last time I looked at the figures, was maybe eight to 12 times a year. Whereas here it's about um, more than double, about two and a half times that. So it'd be like 24 times or 30 times versus um, say once a month, because if they're running between eight and 12 times a year, that's roughly once a month. Um, and if they're running 30 times a year, which is sort of twice that, um, that's, that's twice a month. That's almost every two weeks. Well, that's that's true, and 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 some horses are fine, but some horses need um, some time to recover between races. That's, that's one of the reasons why the Triple Crown 
is uh, so hard to win because you've got three very hard races in a period of seven weeks. Yeah. And uh, it's got to be, a, uh, first of all, it's got to be a very uh, talented horse to do that, but he's also got to be a very tough horse to be able to uh, recover and run in that kind of company that often. I know. And now this year, um, they're starting with the longest race first. That's going to be very interesting this year. Um, and, I, and I don't know um, quite how that's going to work out. Uh, because there are some horses, uh, and we had it a few years ago, uh, where a horse came in uh, and won the Belmont, which is a long race, and had not won the previous two races for the simple reason is he didn't have the speed to compete um, those previous two races. Uh, So it will be difficult uh, to predict what's going to happen, but I know in the UK uh, they've just opened up racing but um, it's what they call behind closed doors. In other words, the races will go on, but there are no spectators. Yeah, that's what they're doing here in the United States, too. It'll be televised, but there will be no spectators. Right. Which may make some horses very happy, Tom. (laughs) That roar of the crowd as they come out sometimes um, breaks a few of them out in a a sweat. (laughs) (laughs) A distraction. (laughs) Absolutely. So let's go back to um, when you were a vet and now that you're an attorney, um, are you involved in any sort of uh, discussions or litigation around horses? Because horses are a known um, dangerous entity. I mean, we're doing racetracks now, but also even pet ownership of horses um, brings a whole different uh, venue of law into play because they're seen as... um, a, a dangerous uh, sport to participate in. Well, there there is uh, mostly what I'm involved in is is in uh, civil litigation, but not administrative. So as far as the laws and the rulemakings go, I'm not really involved in that. But I do see a lot of uh, either people getting injured uh, or uh, who uh, can be protected under the. I think. This was vaguely what you were referring to, the equine liability statute, which gives protection to somebody that's running a a horse activity if somebody who participates in that activity gets hurt because it's known that horses can be somewhat unpredictable. Um, The other thing that I deal a lot with is, and it's not so much in the racehorse field, but it's more in the show or, or pleasure horse field, is for one reason or another, people want to get their animal back. Somebody's taken it. They've leased it out, uh, or uh, it's been quite bluntly or stolen. So we see some of those, and, of course, we always get a, uh, a number of veterinary malpractice cases where people either rightly or wrongly feel that the veterinarian has done something wrong which caused their horse to get injured or die and many times it's it's not true but sometimes it is and let's talk a little bit about that because a lot of that is driven by um emotion and a a failure um not of um practice by the veterinarian but maybe communication that is very much true uh both in the uh companion animals and in the uh, horse field. 
um, there's there's a lot of these uh, conditions could be diffused, uh, as you know yourself, in 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 terms of the extensive mediation experience that you've got. As a veterinarian would just say, um, I'm terribly sorry. This is what happened. This is what I did. I couldn't do anything more. And um, and then they wouldn't get the owners quite so upset as they are, where they now want to file a lawsuit. Yeah. And that's a, sometimes thwarted by um, the legal advice of a defense attorney. Um, would you agree? I would agree totally. Um, most of the veterinarians are insured through Zurich. There are a few other ones as well. And they specifically uh, advise their uh, clients, I suppose you call them that, or the people that pay for the insurance, not to admit anything, not to say you're sorry, not to uh, give anybody their money back uh, or a portion thereof. And I, I really think it's bad advice. Yeah. And I have told people that a lot. Well, yeah, you and I both um, beat that drum because a lot of people who get so angry at veterinarians simply get that angry because they never um, have the opportunity to have a conversation with their veterinarian. I have found in my practice, not because the veterinarian doesn't want to talk to them, they usually do. However, uh, when they check with their um, providers, Zurich or others, they are told that, you know, don't talk to them until they sue you and then we'll take care of it. And then they tell the pet owner, you have nothing, so go away. And that really riles the pet owner, which could have been subdued, as you said so beautifully, by just saying, listen, we did everything we could. This isn't the outcome any of us had hoped for. And I'm, you know, I'm so sorry that it didn't come out the way all of us had hoped. That's not a mistake. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And it's not admitting a mistake. It's rather acknowledging that all of us went into this procedure um, hoping for the best. And um, when that doesn't happen, having that conversation and maybe, and I know since you're a veterinarian, um, you and I have talked about this, maybe if in fact you did make a mistake, taking responsibility, um, learning from that and making sure that you either get remedial um, work or have somebody come in and give you assistance, you made a bad call, isn't a bad thing. No, um, I I agree uh, entirely. And uh, in fact, uh, the insurance company do tell the vet, as soon as you get a wind that something might be gone wrong, turn it over to us. And it's, I mean, it's good for the, I suppose it's good for the veterinarian because he's done with it. Um, but the owner is getting ticked off, and now suddenly the veterinarian is involved in a lawsuit, which could easily have been avoided. Right, and and the thing that really is frightening is veterinary medicine has one of the highest incidents of um, suicide in professions, and so this is frightening. And what I always worry about um, when I've gotten a veterinarian to have a conversation with me as the mediator confidentially, uh, and then say to them when they want to have a conversation with their client, um, now make sure you call your insurance company and tell them you want to participate in mediation. Mediation is confidential. You're paying for it yourself. The only thing you're checking with them is that if in fact it doesn't work out, that you will still be covered. And the answer to that is usually do not participate. So, so for all of the pet owners who are listening, um, who are angry with their vet for being so difficult to talk to, it may not be your vet. 
is what Tom and I are trying to gently say here. It may not be your vet's intention not to talk to. I mean, some vets hide behind the insurance companies um, and those might be the ones who probably need the remedial assistance. Uh, however, most vets do want to have a conversation, do want to um, acknowledge if something went wrong um, and make amends, but are really thwarted by their legal counsel. Yeah, you're, you're right there. I mean, I've had some success calling these guys up and saying, hey, Joe, it looks like you're kind of messed up here. Uh, can we sort this out? And usually about three quarters of the time, you can't. But if it gets to the stage where you're dealing with the insurance company, they can really stonewall you. I remember one that drove me absolutely nuts. It was a, it was a dog that was on a heating pad and got extensive burns because he was left on. And the veterinarian was perfectly willing to cost about $8,000 to uh, get skin grafts and everything else. And the vet was willing to pay for that until the insurance company got involved. And their rep said, well, we're not going to pay for it because there's no uh, proof that the burns were caused by the heating tank. And uh, I said to him, do you mean to tell me that when the ambulance comes to a burning house, they won't treat the person that they comes out on the stretcher without a skin biopsy to show that it was a burn. So there was no answer to that, but the $8,000 turned into $30,000 a couple of years later. I know. And, and how stupid is that? Because first of all, it stresses the veterinarian. I'm, you know, whether it's a track vet or it's a, a companion animal vet, when they have their license under review or have someone say, I'm going to sue you, the stress is astronomical. You and I both hold the license of law. You also hold the license of veterinary medicine. And I don't care who we are. If, you know, the court calls or the license, the vet licensing bureau calls, both of us, um, the hair on the back of our neck stands up. <laughs> yeah. You know, true. it stands up. So, so to, to thwart someone working it out in a way that, that really um, serves everyone. Um, because now what I have found is that some of my clients who call who have vet issues don't sue anymore. They just write to the licensing board because it costs the, the, you know, the, the cost of a stamp. Um, and they also go on social media. And so the veterinarian can't even fight because they're told not to respond um, by their insurance carrier. And yet on Facebook and on LinkedIn and on Twitter, they're being, and Yelp, they're being trashed. And a lot of the defense attorneys that I've spoken to say, well, we just tell our, our veterinarians to get really good um, clients to put good reviews up. And I said, but that doesn't, it's sort of like, you know, Tom, uh -huh. we were in law school and somebody told us we did really good on a test except for this one piece. Um, we only remembered that one piece. We didn't remember about all the good stuff that the professor might have said about us. We only remembered that one piece that was bad. So even though you're getting clients to put up better social media posts, that one really tugs at you. Yeah, you're, you're right there. And um, my usual, um demand letters and, and and I must admit there's been a couple that I've just given them people the money back and saying hey you know you got nothing here but um, the ones that do have something um, I usually put that in in order to avoid this that and the other thing um, this is what we think you should do Yeah. and a lot of times they do of course sometimes like you say they just say hey you know I'm going to turn it over to the insurance 
And sometimes they really are frightened by the insurance company when they say they won't cover their malpractice if it if it fails. And you know, young attorneys, young veterinarians, and older veterinarians, that's that's a scary thing for them. You know, somebody won't um, take up your case with the licensing board, or won't take up your case in court if this person sues you if you participate in a pre litigation discussion. Um, so we just have to shift that paradigm. Now, before we go, I just want to wrap up with the horses. So. In the, in the scheme of things, um, horses have come a long way since when you were a veterinarian on the track um, or not? Um, I would say not much. Um, it, it's, it's, there's, a, there's a few, um, there's a few uh, I would say, modern uh, treatments. Um, there there is, is a degree more of, of uh, uh, administrative oversight and sort of, but not much. Um, interestingly enough, um, now of course, uh, going, I'm pretty old, but I'm not that old, but going way back, the, uh, original, uh, name for, uh, heroin was called horse. Yeah. Because they used to use that as, as a doping thing. Uh, so the, the, the progression is is obviously there, but it's always there's always something that's being used uh, that can't be picked up by the drug testing. So although the drug testing is in place, there appears to be it's just a question of of them staying ahead of the game. As to how effective these medications are, uh, I don't know because you can't do controlled studies and and that sort of thing to to prove it. But I would think, uh, as far as the racing goes, uh, they certainly uh, they do they do lead in one way. They do lead a very nice life. They're well cared for and taken after. They're not out in the field being eaten by flies. But at the same time, they are in their uh, stable for twenty three and a half hours a day, and uh, a lot of times uh, they are uh, being made to run when they really don't want to for either psychological or physical reasons. You know, that's so important to understand because if I sit at my desk for 12 hours a day and then get up and take a long walk, I ache. So that would be the same thing with these wonderful, magnificent animals. Um, so it, it's, it's interesting that medications are sometimes administered that can be detected or have become part of the the practice of running horses that now are being called into question. And we'll see if that goes anywhere with Lasix and other things to pull them off the track, uh, pull the medications off the track. And I want to just pull out the three things that I think we really um, have spoken about today, which is that, you know, tracks are in the business of making money and so are horse owners. So maybe in the United States running horses more often, sometimes 30 times a year, as opposed to maybe eight or 12 times in the UK can really um, cause a horse uh, stress issues, uh, both, as you said, mentally and physically, because they, they really um, might not have um, the training they need or the time off they need to recuperate in between races. Uh, so the, the fact that owners want to race, and sometimes tracks give owners or trainers 
uh, stalls. We didn't talk about this, but they give them stalls so that they can make them put horses in races. So there are horses in races and the, the trainer might know their horse isn't ready, but they'll lose their stable. And so, you know, they'll put it in and sometimes that horse breaks down. So that's always something to consider that financial um, issue on both sides of the track and the owner. Uh, the second thing is that whether or not we we should try to do a better job at running on a surface like turf uh, that has less injury than um, the surfaces that are uh, dirt uh, or synthetic because clearly if the UK is run well they're running less races so right there the horses are you know well rested but on turf it might make a lot more sense if we want to keep horse racing that you know watching these beautiful animals race at top speed. Um, it's a beautiful thing to watch uh, when everything goes right. I know when I see either the Derby or the Preakness um, or the Belmont start, all I want is everybody to finish. <laughs> I mean, that's where I'm at. Mm. I, I just want everybody to finish. Um, but, you know, that and then and then finally, you know, when we're talking about the care of horses, um, being able to have a conversation with your veterinarian, um, if something goes right or if something goes wrong is really key and is not really facilitated by the veterinarian's malpractice provider. So for us to make sure that we understand that sometimes veterinarians want to talk to us and can't, um, and maybe be as, as pet owners uh, or horse owners, um, being sure that we come at a question in a less uh, adversarial defensive way, which is, Tom, you know, we have talked about this, which is incredibly impossible if you love this animal, because the minute something happens to this animal, um, people go into orbit. And I understand that. I probably do it myself, but I try to talk myself off the ledge before I go in and, and have an out-of-body experience. And <laughs> And I always talk to my vets and say, listen, stop, drop and roll, you know, stop talking and listen, because really they're having an out of body experience and you can't, they can't hear you anyway. Drop the need to be right right now, because it really isn't worth it for you to, you know, say, yes, Deborah, I hear you, but because that'll create so much angst and then let what they say roll off your back. Because I've had so many veterinarians who I've worked with for doing stop, drop and roll, um, who say, you know, they do come back and apologize. They, you know, because I didn't add fuel to the fire by telling them how wrong they were. Uh, and it, it does, it does work, believe it or not. <laughs> so yeah. I, I'm just so glad you were here. Any last thoughts for us? Cause this was, you know, talking about horses and horse racing is one of my favorite things to do. Well, I, I have something to add. It's not really the horse racing, but um, I'm also involved in the show horses down in, in Wellington. Yep. And with the, the COVID-19, they said, okay, that's it. We're going to no more shows. And what all the people did was they went to somebody's farm who had an arena. They held their shows anyway. And inevitably, of course, they had a couple of big people. <laughs> yep. uh, what resulted from that, but it, it's a little bit frustrating. Uh, just w as with the racing, with the human population, you try and do something to help them, and sometimes you're just frustrated by um, what other people do. Yeah. Yep. 
because they don't really understand the greater good. Uh, this isn't something that's trying to, I mean, dog shows are the same way. So we could talk forever about how people are really angry that dog shows have been canceled and the venues have actually been usurped. So we don't even know if next year we'll be able to do dog shows at those venues. So I can mm. empathize with the Wellington folks um, and sometimes moving to another venue uh, sort of begs the question on whether or not you understand why it was canceled. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It wasn't canceled just to piss you off. We didn't do that. Although some people do think that's, you know, we should all go back to being normal now. And um, it's yet to be seen if we're going to have another spike or if um, all of this is a hoax. Uh, more, to, more to talk about later on, Tom. But thank you so much for coming. We've been talking to my dear friend, Thomas Nickel of Thomas Nickel Law Firm in Florida. Uh, and I want you to all, you know, look him up on Facebook, look him up on LinkedIn. He's a phenomenal attorney, phenomenal um, advisor as a veterinarian, as an expert witness, because he is just so in tune with both the animal caretaker and the um, animal owners. So please don't forget to look him up. Tom, thank you so much for coming. And we're going to have you back because I just love chatting with you. Okay. Well, thank you for having me. Well, thank you so much for everyone coming to Why Do Pets Matter? And stay tuned for the next episode. Thank you so much for being here. And remember, if you like this podcast, send it to your friends, comment on it, share it on Facebook, because Why Do Pets Matter is everyone's point of view, everyone's belief, and we'd really like to grow our following. Deborah Hamilton, Why Do Pets Matter? I'm the host, and I'm so glad you were here. Until next time. Why do pets matter? Because they take such great care of us. Be well. You've been listening to the podcast, Why Do Pets Matter? This is Deborah Hamilton. Do you have a great idea or guest or topic that you'd like me to cover? Write me at hamiltonlawandmediation.com or email me at whydopetsmatterpodcast at gmail.com. Until next week, our pets do matter. Thank you for being here with me.